This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 194. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what is going on good people welcome to a brand spanking new installment of the before the millions podcast as usual i'm your host deray olalaye and on today's episode we have on a legend we have on a man who shared stages with Mr. Tony Robbins, with Mr. Robert Kiyosaki, with Donald Trump, with so many other notable investors. And his name is Mr. David Lindahl. And he is the author, two-time New York bestselling author. He's the author of a book I've been dying to read. And it's a weird way of saying this because I've been dying to read this book for years, although this book is probably like 15 years old, but it has withstood the test of time. I'm talking a good amount of our guests who've come on the show have talked about David's books, more specifically his book on emerging real estate markets. The reason I've always wanted to read this book is because all markets go through cycles, right? There are key indicators to tell what place in a cycle a market is in. And the way David looks at markets is so fascinating because he gets in and out of markets as they're in the right cycle. He'll get in a market. And as they're leaving out of that cycle, he's going to leave out of that market and go to another market who's just now entering that cycle. As you guys know, yes, there is a U.S. economy and there's an entire market as a whole, but Market cycles are pretty local. And if you can start to understand these market cycles, you can start to shift your investments. You can start to shift your equity. And that's what David has been doing for the better part of 20 years. So we're going to talk about his journey on today's show. We're going to talk about how he got into all of this in the first place. I mean, you would think that David has like a finance background or accounting background. He knows how to forecast and all this stuff with the books that he's writing and with the way he's able to really look at the market and break it down for our listeners and break it down for the world and his, you know, in his books. I mean, again, his, he's a two-time best-selling author with both of his books, but he doesn't have any of those types of backgrounds. Like he was in a rock band and, and at the age of 19, he just met the right people at the right time, rubbed the right shoulders, had the right mindset, and really just took on the onus of studying real estate as a full-time job. We'll get into his story. We'll talk about how he has over 9,000 units, 9,000 units today. And he's he's a millionaire. I mean, many times over. We talk about how you as a brand new investor can pull a million dollars out of your next deal. He tells you the exact size the deal needs to be, what market the deal needs to be in, how to find the deal and how to take down the deal. So needless to say, this episode is very informative. I I think I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again and take some notes. And then for sure, I got to read David's books. And I told David that the only reason I haven't read his book, the only reason that it's been at the top, literally at the very top of my book list, and I've read every single other book on my book list, but his is one thing. And it's because it's not on Audible. So that's my biggest gripe about it. As you guys know, I'm a voracious reader, but the way I digest my content is audio formats. And if I can get any type of content, whether I'm studying for school, which I used to actually record my classroom sessions, like I used to walk into the auditorium with the handheld recorder and record the actual teachings and then go back and listen to them at night when I was falling asleep. That's just how I like to learn. 
So when Audible came out, it was a no-brainer. But again, if your book is not on Audible or if a book is not on Audible, it's going to be very, very hard for me to read it. Now, I will get eventually get around to it, um, but I have to have some serious downtime. It has to be like a vacation or something, right? But as, as far as an Audible book, but as far as an Audible book, like I knock those out like weekly. Like I treat those like podcasts, right? So with that being said, I went ahead and ordered David's book, the physical copy. And yes, I will be reading this physical book. I read, um, I rotate between three and four, maybe even five physical books at one time, because again, it's so hard for me to get through physical books, but I just know that this book has so much value. He's going to talk about it on the show. It's, it's just something as an investor, you need to know as you go in and out of markets, you need to understand what's going on in those markets and what are the key indicators that you need to look for whenever you're entering a market. And we'll talk about some of those things on the show as well, but I definitely suggest that you go by and get David's book if you haven't already. He also has another book called Multi multi-family million. So if you're interested in the multifamily space as an investor, then I definitely suggest you check that out as well. And David did not ask me or pay me to say any of those things, but I really truly believe that his book on emerging markets is like second to none. And you can ask pretty much any investor out there and they'll tell you the same. So with that being said, I don't even want to have a tip of the week. I'm just so excited for this show. So much juiciness, so much detail, vividness, and it's really going to help you, especially if you're trying to select your market. Uh, he's going to tell you exactly what markets are hot right now in 2021. And I caveat that with this, right? It's it's better to teach someone how to fish than to actually give them fish. So although he's showing us exactly what markets are hot right now, again, brushing up on your knowledge on market cycles by reading David's book and other books by economists and people of that nature will teach you how to fish. And that's what we want to do on this show. So we're giving you a little bit of both here in this episode. It's a fascinating, fascinating episode. David's a great guy. We get into his life as well as a dad and he's a triathlete and, you know, all this other good stuff. So make sure that you're tuned in. Make sure that you're subscribed. We have nothing but heat. And I repeat heat coming your way over the next few weeks. Um, I'm just humbled and honored to be able to have these guests, to be able to learn from you know, some of the, the biggest players in the game, some of these multi, multi, multi-millionaires. It's been every week release new episode. I'm just so pumped and not just pumped because the episode is out, but it helps me with my week, right? As I go through my daily doings and as I'm talking to sellers and closing deals and trying to sell property and all this other stuff, like talking to these millionaires, these multi-millionaires, these people who have done way more than I could imagine right now. It's truly inspirational. And I'm sure that's why you're here as well. So we're going to have a whole lot of fun with David. And again, if you're just now tuning into the show for the first or second time, make sure you're subscribed because we bring a guest just like David on the show every single week. So with that being said, let's go ahead and talk to Mr. David Lindahl. And now your feature presentation. Uh, Well, it wasn't a a moment like that. I was actually when I was 16 years old, I joined a rock and roll band. I was lead vocal nice. in this band called Flesh Picnic. And uh, the, 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 the title song, it means exactly what it, it sounds like, Flesh Picnic. Um, and we had a lot of fun in that band. We almost made it twice. I almost made it when I was 19 years old. Atlantic Records wanted us. They wanted me and the, and the guitar player. They didn't want the rest of the band. And I said, well, it's all or nothing. You know, we wrote, wrote those songs together. And he's like, you, you mean to tell me that, you know, if we don't take the whole, we're going to put much better musicians behind you. Is the first thing he said. And, then, and I said, no, it's, it's all of us. And he said, you mean if we don't take all of you, then you're not going to join us? You're not going to sign with us? And I said, no. And he said, I'm a very loyal guy. And he said, uh, kid, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I said, pal, I'm 19 years old. There's going to be plenty of opportunities for me. And that was the only one. <laughs> and I learned a big lesson right there. It's like when that window of opportunity opens up, you just jump through. Right. Uh, so I stayed in that band until I was 24, burnt a lot of brain cells, realized, you know, I got to get out of here. I got to start making some money. I got to start doing something with my life. And uh, I started a landscaping company. I mowed lawns for people. I went door to door. I asked them if I could mow their lawn when they had high grass. Um, and that worked out pretty well until I'm from Boston, until the winter came. Um, and then I was trying, me and my brother were trying all kinds of things. We'd go to franchise shows. We didn't have any money to invest. I come from a lower middle class family, blue collar family in Boston. So um, I went to franchise shows. I went to, I read books on how to start your own business. You know, I was going to clean ceiling tiles. I was going to buy a, a business that does that. And then I started an interview with a guy by the name of Harry Helmsley in New York, from New York City. Started buying and selling apartment buildings um, and ended up owning the Empire State Building. And the interviewer says, Harry, what is it about apartment buildings that get you going? 
Harry said, I always liked the idea that a group of people would pool their money together and give it to you so you could pay off your mortgage, so you could pay for a maintenance man to swing the hammer, take out the trash, um, uh, and do the repairs, so you could pay for a management company to take care of the tenants, take their phone calls, and collect the rent. And they would give you so much money at the end of the month, you could pay off all of those expenses and still have money left over for you that you can reinvest, um, uh, put into a savings account, just go out and have a good time with. And I thought, man, that sounds so simple. If, it, if it's really true, that's what I want. I want in. And uh, I found out I did my first deal nine months after that. Probably could have done it in three months, uh, but I was so afraid to do that first deal that I, I was putting it off. But, you know, when you talk about that sweaty hands moment, I don't, you know, I've been asked this question a lot. There was never a sweaty hands moment for me. My whole thing was, I was just tired of being broke. You know, mm-hmm. I was tired of being broke. I saw other people have things. My mindset for my family was, yeah, it's nice. Other people get to have things. Unfortunately, we can't because this is our lot in life, blah, blah, blah. And finally, I started asking myself the question, well, why not me? You know, why not me? Uh, and then when I started asking that question, the next question after that was, how do I? So between those two questions and answering those two questions, I, st- I got involved in multifamily properties. I started going to real estate investment groups. I got the Carlton Sheets course on how to buy singles, but that wasn't really what I was into. But I, there was nobody out there teaching this back then. So, but that course that go to your real estate investment club, you'll see people just like you doing it and you'll know that you can do it too. And yeah. I did. And I saw some people doing multifamily too. So I started pulling them aside. They, they uh, take them out to lunch, pick their brain. I started bird dogging for them because I was too afraid to buy the deals. But I knew that when they were buying my deals that I was analyzing these deals right. You know, and then finally, nine months into it, the hand of God came down from the sky and slapped me in the face like three or four times and said, this is the deal. I've given you three or four other deals that you should have got. Take this deal. But again, I was so afraid that my father kept telling me, you start investing in real estate, you're going down. You know, because I was a crazy kid in the rock and roll band. He just didn't want me to screw up again, you know, because I built quite a reputation for myself. So I thought, if I'm going down, I better take somebody with me. So my best friend, since we were 10 years old, he was working in the second shift at Chadwick's, a clothing store, putting the clothes in boxes and setting them out. I was like, Rob, let's start investing in real estate. We can buy multifamilies in Brockton for below the replacement cost and they cash flow. I said, and we can get it with no money down. I said, but I have to warn you, my father tells me that if we do this, we're going down. And his response was, Dave, how much farther down can we go? And I thought, this is perfect. This is the perfect part. So we set off and uh, it took us nine months to do the first one. And then, you know, you do that first deal is always the hardest. We built momentum after that. Within three months, we had three more. Within six months, we had nine. Within the first year, we had 11. Within the first three years, we had nearly 40 of these three distinct unit properties. And and we didn't buy anything bigger than that because we were afraid to buy anything bigger. But but I started, I engrossed myself into real estate and what makes markets move and, and market cycles and I realized that, you know, these millions that we had made in a short period of time was mostly in equity and we were going to lose it if we didn't need to put it in cash or move it to another market. So I learned about job growth. I learned about household formations. I learned about what markets move. And I, we started moving our equity down to Montgomery, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi, Texarkana, Texas. And, you know, before we knew it, we had uh, close to 9,000 units. I love it. I love it. So succinct, so amazing. And I have so much to pick apart in that uh, message that you shared with, uh, with us. So I appreciate it. When you talk about the fact that, I mean, you can get advice from anybody, right? Advice is free, right? Mm-hmm. And when you are at such a young, impressionable age, and obviously your parents have the biggest impression on you in, in terms of advice and literally everything. But when you were taking advice from, let's just say your dad, you were taking advice from, you know, the the show you're listening to with that investor. You were taking advice from these meetups, from these other investors. When you look at just the 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 word advice, right? The the concept of, of advice. When you take advice from people, what is your what is your outlook on it, right? I mean, because I, I'm just imagining that, and this happens to people all the time, where we get advice from people around us. Right. You know, I remember I, w- I was a corporate employee and I was getting into real estate and I would ask people, hey, man, like I want to get into real estate. I want to start investing. How long do you think it's going to take me or do you think it's a good idea? And the people that weren't in real estate, the type of advice they would give me would be totally different than the people that were in real estate, the type of advice they would give me. And I could listen to both and I could be closer to the people like my parents and my family, or I could be closer to the people who weren't in real estate, but had no idea what real estate was really about. 
right? So when it comes to advice and you filtering the advice that you're taking on and, and, and filtering the advice that, you know, you just don't want to even listen to, what, what's, your, what's your standpoint or viewpoint in terms of advice? I learned to take advice from people that were doing it. And anybody that wasn't doing it, I filtered it right out. Number one was my father. I mean, he kept telling me I was going down. I had done it with my father every Monday night for, you know, 22 years. And uh, back then, on the Monday night dinner, when I came up with this big plan that I was going to start investing in multifamily properties, I thought it was such a great idea after I saw that interview. You know, that's when he started with the you're going down part. And every time I talked about it after that, it was like, you're going down. Sometimes he wouldn't even, sometimes he wouldn't even say it. He'd just give me the hand gesture. <laughs> and I realized I have to stop talking. To him. I was nervous enough as it was, you know, I had my own fears going on. And uh, I thought, I got to stop talking to him about this. So. I, sh- I stopped talking to him about it. And the next time he heard about me in real estate, I was the number three landlord in the city of Brockton. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so uh, it's, it's a fascinating concept and story. But when you think about the fact that, I mean, you were in a rock band, right? You started yeah. a landscaping company. Right? You, didn't, you, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't go get your finance MBA. You didn't go get your, your, you know, you didn't go get your accounting degree. You didn't go figure out, well, how do I, you know, um, financial forecast. Like you didn't get what they call standardized training for what you eventually get in, got into. How did you start to piece together some of these concepts? And, you know, you talk about job diversity and looking at, you know, emerging markets and things of that nature. And we're going to get to, you know, your book, Emerging Real Estate Markets. But how did you start to piece together some of these things without the quote unquote standardized educational background that most people think that you need to get into real estate or anything that has to do with technical numbers and things of that nature? I read, I read and read when I decided I was going to start investing in real estate. This is before Amazon.com. I would go to the, uh, the local bookstores and I would just buy the, the books on real estate investing, mostly all were single family. And then after I read those and realized it wasn't single family that I wanted to do, but yet I understood the concept of investing in single family. I started taking the multifamily guys out to lunch and asking them, you know, what's the difference between multifamily and single family? You know, what do, what do I need to look for? What do I need to look out for? Is it really true that the tenants are going to trash my apartments? You know, are they not going to pay the rent? And I'm going to get foreclosed on. That was my father. Father's message constantly, and um, so they started teaching me. It's all about cash flow. It's all about treating your tenants like the gold that they are. You know, it's it's all about buying the right property in the right area. I remember my first mentor. I bought um, four or five properties, and I had a guy that just came. He was a hard money lender, and decided that he liked me and he wanted to mentor me. He had owned a thousand units himself, and I brought a deal to him. My next deal, and I said, "Mark, what do you think?" And I was really proud of it. I was getting it was a three unit property. I was getting it for low dollars per door. And, um, and I just thought, this is a great, I'm getting a great deal. And he said, well, why are you buying that property? I said, because I'm getting it for cheap and it cash flows. And he said, yeah. He said, but that's a marginal property. I said, yeah, I'm getting it cheap. He says, yeah, it's a marginal property in a marginal area. And all of a sudden I realized, I, I knew Mark well enough at this point that there was a lesson coming. And I was like, okay. And he said, Dave, you buy marginal properties in marginal areas. He said, you're going to get marginal tenants. And those marginal tenants are going to cost you more to maintain those properties. Also, when you go to sell that property uh, or when a market changes, the tenants in the marginal properties lose their jobs first. And if you get to a point where, you know, your tenants aren't paying you, you need to sell that property in order to recover any equity that you might have. People don't buy marginal properties in marginal, uh, in marginal markets. He said, but if you buy good properties in good areas, you'll always have a buyer because there's always a buyer no matter what market phase you're in. Uh, for a good property in a good area. You'll have good tenants that will have less wear and tear on the property, so it will cost you less to run that property. And when the market starts to appreciate again, that those properties in the good areas will appreciate much higher and faster than the marginal properties in the marginal areas. Mm. And I was like, wow, I've taken that lesson with me for years now, and that has made me so much money. That was a key uh, lesson in my, in my education of how to invest in multifamily. So, so early on in, in your journey, you decided to um, leave the uh, leave the the city of Boston, and you decided to start looking at cities and states uh, further down south. You mentioned Texarkana and some of these other uh, metroplexes. What did you see in some of these areas that you weren't seeing in your primary investing uh, area at the time? I started uh, reading everything I could on on markets and market cycles because I realized that my city of Brockton that I had been investing in 
that the prices have gotten to a point. Like I was buying properties between fifty and seventy thousand dollars back then. This is way back in the nineties and um, in the eighties and nineties. And and um, I had seen those properties go up to two hundred and twenty-five, two hundred fifty thousand. And I thought this is crazy. You know, nobody's going to buy properties uh, in Brockton for this. And I learned that what goes up must come down. And so I started like grasping as much information as I could on that. And I learned that markets move because of jobs and job growth. Markets move because of, of additional household formations coming into a market. Those are the two key indicators of, of markets. Um, so I learned to follow this. Real quick, uh, you, said the, you said the second one was what? Additional household, household formations? What does that mean? Yep. The number of households that are actually being formed in a marketplace. So the number of uh, people that are migrating into the area and forming a household, two okay. or more people. Got it. It's kind of like so, a marriage. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and so, and so, I learned that at that particular time to look for for cities. So, oh, I, I was in this. I was watching this news service called Inman News, and that would tell you about jobs that were being announced in different parts of the country. And at that time, in Montgomery, Alabama, a Kia plant had just been announced. Five thousand new jobs coming into the Kia plant. Now, in all my research, I had learned all this other ancillary knowledge as well. And I learned that for every job that comes into a marketplace, there's also a service job that's created. It's called the multiplier effect. Mm. So that's like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. And a multiplier effect can go from anywhere from three to 11. Montgomery was actually a three. So for that 5,000 new jobs, there was an additional 15,000 jobs being brought in behind that. So now 20,000 jobs coming into this marketplace. I learned about barriers to entry. Anytime you have a market that has a barrier to entry, Maybe it's the ocean, like Boston has a barrier to entry because there's no east side. Um, you've got mountains in Phoenix that are barriers to entry. There are major water, water areas. Um, Montgomery had, was surrounded by floodplains. You can't build in the floodplains. That means supply is going to remain the same as demand is now going to go up because mm. of all the jobs that are being created. So that was the recipe of a good first market for me. This conversation so, gets me so excited. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So, uh, are these so, are these are these some of the things in your in your book emerging real estate markets that I that I haven't yet to read? I tell the story. I tell the Montgomery story in that book. Okay, perfect, yep. perfect, perfect. And and I mentioned before the show that I've been I've been wanting to read that book and it's on the top of my book list and I will get around to it now that I have you on the show. Um but I will I will make a public request David that you guys figure out how to get it on Audible ASAP. ASAP. I would love that. <laughs> I figure that out. I love it. But you do have another book that you've recently released that's called Multifamily Millions. Um, yeah, before- it wasn't recently released. It was released. Uh, it's like a foundational book, Multifamily Investing. It started so many people off in it. Uh, but yeah, that one's on Audible. That one's on Audible. Okay. Per- when, when, you, when, you, when you started really diving deep into these markets and you started to see the market trends, um, you started to shift your equity from certain markets to other markets because yeah. those markets were more beneficial because of all of the things that you just named, right? Um, now, here in 2021, I know we're fast forwarding quite a little bit and we'll, we'll get back into your story a little bit more, but I, I'm just looking at how the markets are today. And I'm just like, man, like it seems like just everything is exploding. Everything is high. Everything is overpriced. Um, are there still value markets to be had even today? Yeah. So we before COVID happened, we were at the, the end run of this particular cycle nationally. Every uh, every local market has its own local cycle. Right. Nationally, we're at the end run, and we figured that by the time the election hit, uh, right after the election, they were going to be kept propped up until the election, and then we we're going to see the correction. And then COVID hit, so we never really got our correction. So we never really. So when you're in the late stages of a market. There are no real markets out there that you can go in and buy three, four, five properties. And that's what we like to do as emerging market investors. We like to stake a flag in a market and we like to buy it. And that way we can build our infrastructure, our team members, our management companies, and you know, um, we, get a con- we uh, uh, reach economies of scale. So at the later stages of the market, you're really into tier sharing markets. The way the money moves in, a, in the country uh, in terms of real estate is market cycles always start on the coast, the East Coast and the West Coast. And as they, what we call yield out, when first you get in there and you're buying value properties, okay? And then the, the type of value, the number of value properties start to dwindle. And then, then investors start to look elsewhere for their yields. So they'll leave Boston to New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, and they'll start moving in towards the center of the country. You know, Los Angeles, they go to Boise, they go to Las Vegas. Um, and uh, from Boston, you, uh, typically we'll go down actually to Charlotte, then we'll go up to 
Columbus, Ohio, but we'll work our way in. And as you work your way in, the markets get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you go from primary to secondary to tertiary markets. Those tertiary markets don't have the inventory or the supply. So you can stake a flag in there and, and get three or five properties in there to build economies of scale. So you're basically doing, at the end of a cycle, you're doing one-off deals in tertiary markets. So that's where we that's where we were. That's where we kind of are right now. But we're seeing markets start to form and starting to rebound. We're seeing Dallas, Texas, one of the best markets to be investing in, is rebounding. Las Vegas got hit so hard and so low, it can only rebound from where it was. Um, Huntsville, Alabama has been a market that's done well since I started investing there in 2006. It has the higher per capita of white collar workers in any market in the United States. Wow. The higher white collar workers you have, the, the higher the multiplier effect. Montgomery has a multiplier effect of 14, I mean, um, Huntsville has a multiplier effect of 14 new jobs for every white collar job that's created there. Wow. So these are the wow. markets that are, that are set to really start moving. And, and in every like cycle that but I just explained, you know, the COVID is kind of different because coming out of the COVID experience, markets are resetting themselves, but not in a normal manner. So usually when we have a correction, we know the go-to markets. We go to um, Washington, D.C., and then we know that Baltimore legs Washington by about a year. We know that uh, very strange, but Minneapolis, Minnesota is one of the first markets always coming out of a correction. Why? I still haven't figured it out. I just know what happens. And, you know, so you just go with the flow, you know. Uh, the trend is your friend. So, um, so we know which markets typically, you know, move at these, at these particular times. But at this particular case, the COVID experience has changed a little bit. And you just kind of look at the economics of markets and you know good, strong markets are going to rebound fastest. And that's what we're looking at right now. Absolutely. Uh, when you when you look at some of your indicators, what are some of the best markets that you see um, are primed for a rebound? It's Dallas, uh, it's Las Vegas, it's Orlando, Florida. A lot of these, uh, so we, we typically look at, at job growth, but jobs have been decimated because of COVID. You know, and now because of the fact that the economy has changed and people are working from home still and you know, it has a ripple effect in the markets. So we're looking in this strategy now is to look at markets that were most affected by perhaps tourism, like Orlando, Las Vegas. You know, and as people start to move around the country again, those markets start coming back fastest because they have to add jobs back in. Uh, and when jobs come in, people come in and, and household formations come in and markets start to move again. I love it. I love it. Okay, let's let's go back now because I want to talk about these books again. T- tell me the time, the first time that you had the idea that I need to get a book out. Like this is this is a lot of a wealth of information. People need to know about this. Um, or was it somebody who, who prompted you with the idea? When, when was the first kind of inception of, hey, we need to get something out for the people? Uh, that wasn't that wasn't my plan at all. What happened was I was in Texarkana, Texas. It was my uh, third or fourth market that I was in. Uh, I bought a property there. I was I was looking at another property. I was down for a visit, looking at another property. I was by myself. I was eating at a local restaurant, but because I was by myself, I was eating at the bar. The guy next to me heard me talking to the bartender and said, "Oh, you're not from around here. Where are you from?" I said, "Boston." And he said, "Oh," he said, "What are you doing down here?" So I explained to him that I was buying in Texarkana and he started asking me more and more questions. And I explained to him the, my emerging market strategy. And uh, he said, I'm from Kipperlinger's Magazine. He said, I'd love to do an article on you. He said, do you want to do it right now? And I said, sure, because my father reads Kipperlinger's Magazine. And I thought, if I show up on his doorstep and I'm on Kipperlinger's, this is going to be like, this is the turning point. And that's exactly what happened. I was like, I, I remember, just I knew it was going to be delivered. I got it out of the mailbox. I brought it in and said, Dad, check out. Here's your issue with Kip on you. And he said, oh, thank you. I said, check out page 42. And, it <laughs> like yeah. and I said, Dad, you were right. Yeah, I, 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 I did go down. And I, I go down every month to the bank with a handful of checks to put them into my account. I love it. Was, yeah, he was just, he couldn't believe it that I was in that magazine. So that book. Actually, that was that was emerging real estate markets. That hit number one. It did well for a long time, and then uh, shortly after, Wiley called me back and said, "Hey, you get a bestseller. Let's do another one." And I thought, "Well, what do you want me to write on?" And they said, "How about?" Oh, so from the Kiplingers, uh, after I told my father that, I got a call from Wiley from New York. So we just read this article in the newspaper. Would you write a, like to write a book about it? And I thought this would make my mother really proud. And uh, so that's why I wrote Emerging Real Estate Markets, to make my mother proud, actually. Wow. Unfortunately, not to give back to the people, but to make my mom proud. Wow, I love it. Yeah, when they said, uh, could you write another one? 
And I said, what do you want me to write about? And they said, well, write all about how to, how to buy these properties, you know, multifamilies. And I said, all right. So we did that one and that one became a bestseller. And that's been a, that's been, both of those books have been bestsellers for years because it's such great foundational information on how to invest. You know, yeah. it's, it's not like it's not these techniques that are working in the marketplace back then when I wrote it. It's foundational information that works throughout. I love it. I love it. Tell us a little bit more about the Merging, the market, uh, Emerging Real Estate Markets book for those of us who've never heard of it before. What can we expect out of that book? Uh, emerging Real Estate Markets explains the four phases of the market cycles. Uh, you know, you don't have to go to emerging markets. You, you understand the four phases of the market cycle. More importantly, what transitions them, you know, as they're transitioning from one phase to another. And you use the right strategy at the right time, the buying and selling strategy. You can make a ton of money in your own backyard. Um, it, during those four phases is the emerging phase. And that's where markets appreciate the fastest. So when people get a taste of, of fast appreciation and emerging, and they know that there are other markets out there that are doing that when their market transitions out of that phase, then it's only natural that they start looking at those markets. And at any given time, there's anywhere from 20 to 30 markets that are in the emerging phase in the United States, regardless of what the natural economy is doing. Um, like so um, what that book does is it explains the four phases of the cycle. So you get a thorough understanding of that. And then it takes you into how to identify these markets, how to get into those markets, how to build teams in these markets, how to identify the right properties in these markets, and then how to build a portfolio. And most importantly, when to leave the markets. You know, we call it taking the, you know, take your chips off the table. When to take your chips off the table and move to the next market. Based on, and you, I mean, that book is how, how many years old at this point? 2006, I wrote that book. Okay, so we're, we're going on 15 years. And just thinking about the fact that that book is so powerful today, but you as the author, David, mm -hmm. um, you know, I heard Tim Ferriss on a show talk about some of his books and some things he wish he could go back and change and add and amend and things of that nature, just based on his new experiences and his learnings. You as the author of that book, which is, again, it's a timeless book because of how you wrote the book. Is there anything that you'd want to add just based on your experiences today, especially after COVID? Like, is there anything, are there any things that you're just like, man, like if we could just have an amendment or if I could come out with a part two, like these are the things that are new to me. These are the things that I think that would really benefit people who have read or will read emerging real estate markets. Yeah. So there is, um, what I learned through my investing was there's a certain type of property where I made my most money. And, you know, there's two types of properties. There's momentum plays that cash flow closing. And there are repositionings that are properties that are 80, below 85% occupied, which are which considered equilibrium. Um, and they've suffered some sort of a problem, some deficiency. And you've got to take that property and bring it back to life. Those are the riskiest of all types of properties. But you can make a ton of money if you do it right. Um, the momentum plays that cash flow closing less risky. That's basically what we train people how to do first. So as I was in, through the years, as I analyzed my deals at the end of the year, the deals that I closed, I try to figure out, you know, did I make the money that I projected? If I did, great. How? You know, what went right? And if I didn't, what went wrong? Um, so, and I would analyze these deals. And as I was doing that through the years, all of a sudden I recognized the fact that there was this like one set parameters of these deals that I made my most money. And I call them micro repositionings. Mm. All right. It's a term that I created, actually. Some of my... Some of my clients have gone to the broker and said, I want micro repositioning deals. And they're like, What's what that? <laughs> yeah. But it's a, it's, it's a deal that, let's say a market is 92% occupied. So there's some sort of mismanagement going on. Occupancy is dipping down, okay? But it doesn't go as low as 85% where you pass equilibrium. You grab it before it gets there. And then the, the parameters are, it's got to be a B property in a B, B area. So there's areas are A, B, C, and D. A is luxury. D is for drug dealers, war zones. <laughs> you know, so it's going to be a B area. Yeah, good property, good area. Um, and then, um, so B property, B area. And you only want to be putting in between 2,000 to 4,000 per door of improvements. That's basically mm -hmm. cosmetics. You don't want any structural problems. You don't want to put a lot of money in. Um, and then within a short period of time, the cosmetics are done. You're now releasing to newer people from the marketplace at the newer rents. The other tenants that are in there, they're going through the leasing process because you own those leases and you take over a deal and they, they extend out the 12 months. So as they come due, they're seeing that you, oh, and one of the things you really focus on is the exterior of the property. You really want to make it pop. You want the landscaping to pop. You want you, you, you um, uh, either retar or redo the driveway. You restripe it. You, you improve the signage. You don't have to change the name because it's not a repositioning. But you improve the signage, you improve the common areas. Um, so you just make it pop. And then the, the current tenants know that, hey, we've got an ownership that cares now because the previous one didn't. So they stop leaving. 
Um, and then when they go to release, they're happy to release at the at the market rents. With the previous owner, not only was it was he not releasing at current market rents because he couldn't get it, but his tenant profile, the quality of his tenant went much lower too, because now he's just thinking about I gotta meet my expenses. And then and then they can't meet the expenses and it's I gotta meet my mortgage. You know, so this, that's where the deferred maintenance comes in. Yeah. So those deals, I mean, if you do a hundred unit deal, 75 to hundred unit deal, the typical uh, profit is around a million dollars. So it's the yeah. easiest way to make a million dollars in real estate. Unfortunately, they're not, you know, those deals don't scream out at you. They're not the most common deals out there, but because of COVID, you know, and because the people they hurt the most were the people that didn't learn how to operate their properties properly. They learned how to buy them. They learned how to fund them, the two sexy parts, you know, but they never, and they keep going on to more and more deals because that's what some people is a thrill of the chase. And they never learned how to operate properly. Those are the people during COVID who dropped from the 90s into the 80s. And those are the people that are giving up their properties right now. So that's what, it's a really exciting time. And that's what I, as a, it's strange because I just emailed over to uh, John Naramore over at Wiley. And I said, hey, you know, I'd like to add uh, micro repositions, not to emerging real estate markets, but actually multifamily millions. I'd like to add micro repositions, a chapter on that and redo that book. And uh, I like it. I like it. I like it. Uh, this is this is a fascinating concept, and I was just about to ask you about that. So you answered it succinctly. It's called micro repositions because you're not totally repositioning the property. You're not rebranding the property. You're not renaming the property. You're doing these little micro repositions where the the structure is okay, everything is fine, but you're doing little cosmetic things, and you're changing management, and you're making sure that you're bringing in a new, better quality of tenant and Again, with the 75 to 100 unit building, you're saying that you're able to clear a million dollars. That is absolutely amazing. So let's talk yeah. about, go ahead. I just want to add a strategy to that. So now that, um, you know, that was coming up, I thought to myself, well, I want, you can refinance a deal and you can clear a million dollars and your investors would still be in the deal and everybody's happy. You pay them off. Everybody makes some money at the refinance, and, but they're still your partners. Now we've actually bring people into these deals, letting them know that, you know, we're going to refinance this and we're going to refinance you out of the deal. And you're going to make a good return. You're going to make an 8% cash on cash return. And then when we cash you out, it's going to be, you know, a total of 15%. And then they're all, you know, depending on who they are, what their circumstances are, there's a lot of people happy with that. And so now we've cashed them out. We've made some cash. They're all happy. And now we own this property with the bank and the tenants are paying off the mortgage. And now it's considered a legacy property because it's a B property in a B area in a good market. Yeah. So now you hold on to it to your next generation. That's right. how you create well. I love it. I love it. I love it. How um how are you looking for how are you finding deals these days? And how are the how I guess how are the typical because again, I'm in the um I'm in the single family space and I know how conversations go with sellers and sellers are, you know, often super motivated for one reason or another, and we find a way to create a deal that matches their motivation, right? To do a lot of creative financing from owner financing and subjects too. So we're always looking at the seller's motivation, trying to craft a deal around that. I just want to know how maybe in the multifamily space, um, that differs how these conversations with sellers different uh differ what some of their and you've touched on a little bit of the motivation from that particular property right the seller just wasn't able to pay their monthly note every single month the tenants were leaving month after month the occupancy rates were going down but when you when you when you where are you finding these sellers and how are these conversations going with these sellers as of late there's two ways uh number one direct mail is working really good now typically you're getting one percent response on your direct mail uh, we're seeing three, four, eight percent uh, direct mail responses right now. And then when you go into the negotiations, you just typically lay out the numbers because anybody that owns multifamily realizes it's a cash business. You know, it's cash flow gain. So you just lay out the cash flow numbers. And you know, one of the one of the things I love to talk to a seller and say to them is, you know, they want a higher price, and and I'm telling them why you get a lower price. And then I just turn to them and say, you know, Mr. Seller, you know, I'm going to have to go to the bank, and the bank's going to look at the same numbers, and the bank's going to, you know, appraise us at this price. You know that, I know that, so that's why we need to come to terms with this price. And if we can't, then we're gonna have to walk away. That that kind of close right there has closed more deals because they they know it. It's just yeah. the way it is. Um, so we're getting it from there, but you know, this this, this business, multifamily, especially in the larger deals, it's a relationship business. You get your deals from your brokers, you get your deals from your property management companies, the attorneys that you're doing business with, mainly your broker. And we like to teach, uh, and I like to do what's called commonality. Whenever I'm in a relationship with a new broker, the first thing I try to do is that after I've introduced myself and, and, and you know we've given our credentials, is I like to find out what they like. You know, I, I say, what do you like to do on the weekends? You know, what, how do you spend your time? 
And then I try to find out what I have in common with them. Maybe I won't hit it on the first one. Maybe I won't hit it on the second one. But I ask that same question three times. You're, I've never asked that question more than three times. And uh, you hit something, something that you both have, are passionate about, and that's what you focus on. After, you know, every phone call starts with the passion and then business. You know, you start sending them information, uh, maybe magazine subscriptions, whatever it is. You know, you establish that relationship because both of you are truly passionate about this one thing and you start to establish a friendship. And then now you've got a relationship and friends like to do uh, business with friends. And that's how you do business in this business. Absolutely. So we got direct mail and we got relationship building with brokers or David Lindahl's one and two strategies for finding these amazing deals. Now, let's jump back into your personal life and your personal goals. And, you know, just the fact that you have so many things going and, you know, you're, 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 you have um, you have a conglomerate, I imagine, of people that are working with you and for you. When you think about your day-to-day business, when you think about your day-to-day life, um, and we'll start with your morning routine. Um, whenever you, whenever you, when, when, whenever you wake up in the morning, just you know, the first hour, the first few hours, is there is there a routine that kind of helps you get get to where you need to be, get your mind right, get you focused, get you on top of your game? Uh, do you have your goals set out? Are you are you writing? Are you reading? Are you meditating? Are you working out? Do you have a routine? And if so, kind of expand on that first. Yeah, uh, the first part of my routine is when I first wake up. You know, the first fifteen minutes of your day is when your mind is still in delta, when you can talk directly to your subconscious. So I'm feeding my subconscious, you know, what, what I want that day to be, the type of person I want to be that day, the things I need to do to be that type of person, the things I need to avoid to be that type of person. I learned this from Dr. Joe Dispenza, um, and it's an awesome technique on how to start your day. So then from there, I get up and I do gratitude. You know, what, what am I grateful for? And get that mindset going. I do 15 minutes of meditation. Um, and then I'm, I'm an athlete, so I'm a triathlon. I'm a triathlete. So I'm usually doing bike, swim, or run first thing in the morning. But my, my caveat is the fact that I have two five-year-old twins and a three-year-old son, and I'm a single dad. And uh, so sometimes I have to get up at four because they'll get up at 5.30 and really screw up my morning routine. You know, I used to get up at, I, it was five. I'm a natural morning person. I used to get up at five, but, you know, if one of them gets up at 5.30, then that it blows everything. So they usually wake up between 6 and 6.30. But for instance, this morning, I had to do a two-hour bike. I'm training for an Olympic triathlon in september so i had to do a two-hour bike on my schedule and my son comes down i'm like a half an hour into the bike i'm like oh, i can't so i get out this big thing of legos and i empty it out and I'm like, here, here. <laughs> here. <So>. yeah <laughs> i love it that's awesome when you think about the, when you're tracking um your 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 biking and your swimming and your running um i don't know how meticulous you're tracking those things what are you using any particular app to track like the distance and your yeah, calories and things garmin, garmin watching garmin app yeah and i've okay. got a coach Perfect. I did Perfect. Iron 213. Wow. And uh, so I, I realized that I wanted to finish that race between 17 hours. So I only had to do it once and I could get the title of Iron. So I did. Um, That's awesome. And so she's been with me off and on. I went. I had a really bad spine uh, injury a few years ago. For two years, I was like out of it. Um, and then I came back from that. So I'm back and doing races again. And uh, when I decided I wanted to, in order to this Olympic, I want to finish within three hours because then I'll qualify for this other race up in, in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where you bike for 22 miles and then you jump off your bike and you swim across a pond with your sneakers on your back. And then you run to another pond a couple of miles away and you swim across that. And then you run to another pond and swim across that. And then you run a mile to the finish. But you have to qualify for that race. So that's my whole goal. So I get the team back in place. You know, to qualify. My listeners can't, my listeners can't see me. Wow. My listeners can't see, I said, my listeners can't see me, but I'm just shaking my head in in awe. (laughs) It's just, it's just a lie. It's wow. That's, that's, that's all amazing. I I consider myself an athlete, but that's just the next, next, next level. And, you know, the first person that pops in my head when you talk about all those things is uh, Jesse Itzler. I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with him. Um, He's a, he's a Sarah Blakely's husband, uh, the woman who founded Spanx, the billionaire. Um, oh, yeah. But he 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 does a lot of these things, and I I read his books as well. And man, he, it's, it's just motivation. So just hearing you talk about these things, I'm like, yeah, I got to get on it. I got to get on it. So that's super super dope. Now the fact that you have time for this, that, the fact that you you know create time for your kids and your wife, and you know your multiple businesses. When you feel stressed, David, when you feel overwhelmed, right? When you feel tired, or you're just not in the mood, what do you do to get yourself back in alignment? And if it helps, what questions do you ask yourself? It's not so much, I mean, I recognize the fact when my, I call it my, my energies are low, 
you know, my back, I tell call my batteries are low. So I'll talk to, you know, uh, my significant other, family friends and members, and I'll say, my batteries are low, I need a date date. They know exactly what I mean. It means Dave needs a day to go out and go somewhere and do nothing, you know, or do something inspirational. I like Not this. go somewhere and, you know, and do a bunch of things. It's go somewhere and like, like go kayaking, you know, or just hang. My father's got a small cottage down in Warren. Just hang on the porch of that cottage, college all day and just let thoughts come in and out of my mind. Dave days, you know, reinvigorate. I like it. That's the best answer I've probably gotten about for, from that question. So that's super dope. Dave days. I'm going to call mine DeRay days. Awesome. <laughs> so, so, so I, again, I want to, I want to put a cherry on top when it comes to um, just market cycles, emerging markets. Um, when you think about advice that you hear from maybe your peers, you know, people you've, you've shared stages with such as Robert Kiyosaki, Donald Trump, when you think about the fact that ultimately some people have a different viewpoint from you going back to the fact that you get advice from all types of people. Some people who give you advice are not necessarily doing what you're doing. But when you hear commonalities between what you say and what you believe as far as emerging markets and real estate markets in general, and then you hear things that are not so common, you're just like, why is that investor saying that? Or why does that investor think that? Or why is that investor looking at that in that type of light? I want you to clear up some of those those misconstrued statements that you've heard on stage that you've heard, you know, in conferences that you've heard at meetups that you're just like, dude, that's totally incorrect. You know, again, these are from your peers, people that are doing exactly what you're doing, but you just see it in a totally different way. Can you clear up one or two of those things here today on this podcast? Well, in terms of multifamily investing, then I think the two biggest distortions are the fact that the tenants are going to destroy your place. Um, and then that they're not going to pay and you're going to get, just like my father said, they're not going to pay and you're going to get foreclosed on. But the misconception there is the fact that if a tenant's going to destroy your place, that's because you didn't screen them properly. Yeah, you got to get bad tenants. You know, you can't screen 100% of them properly. And, and if you do it right, you're not even doing it. Your management company is doing it. Um, but it's all in the mindset of how you treat your tenants. You've got to treat your tenants like the gold that they are. They're your cash flow. I'll never forget, you know, my one-bedroom apartment. And uh, my sister was my, my secretary. My office was my living room. And I walked up one day, and she was, like, ripping into somebody. And I was like, who are you talking to? And she's like, oh, it's the woman over there on Newton Street, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you can't talk to her like that. So why not? You know, she did this. And she, I said, because she's my cash flow. You know, she, if, without my tenants, I don't own these properties. These people are paying the bill for the billings for me. I said, you got to treat them right. I don't want them to. The, the, the biggest expense in multifamily investing is tenant turnover. Mm-hmm. You know, so the more you turn over your tenants, the more expensive, the less money you make. So, so that's so that's the first one. Uh, and your tenants are your—they're not your friends, but they're your uh, like they're your your partners, your partners mm-hmm. in this deal. So treat them like that. Yeah. And then the second one is is uh, yeah, they won't pay your rent and they'll get foreclosed on. That again goes to screening. You put the right people in your properties, and they're gonna pay your rent. Nobody nobody wants to be evicted from their place. Nobody wants an eviction stain on their record. And you know everybody realizes that you need a house over yours and your family's head. So they're gonna do what they need to do to get their rent paid. This episode is brought to you by Fundrise. It's never been easier to become a real estate investor. With as little as $500, watch your money passively work for you by investing in real estate through a crowdfunding platform like Fundrise. In just a few minutes, you can invest in hundreds of highly vetted multi-million dollar properties such as hotels, apartment buildings, and offices all around the U.S., Based on your financial goals, Fundrise will detail a few REITs, real estate investment trusts, for you to choose from. With the click of a button, you can own fractional shares of really amazing deals that before the Jobs Act of 2012 were impossible for the everyday non-accredited investor to even hear about, much less invest in. Now, what I like about Fundrise is their ridiculously low advisory fees. So dig this, at 1.5%, my actual returns on Fundrise are outperforming my stated returns and other assets, even though they advertise higher returns. So Fundrise has no hidden costs, no management fees, no unfavorable terms. And for the BTM tribe, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash Fundrise, that's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E, for your first three months of advisory fees totally waived. Yes, the actual only fee that Fundrise charges is being waived for three months. Simply head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash Fundrise and welcome yourself to a real alternative to investing in the stock market. That link, one last time, is beforethemillions.com forward slash Fundrise. 
Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks. This can't be one of your books. What is your favorite <laughs> Before the Millions book? Before the Millions, uh, Anthony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. I love it. Yes. Great book. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. TikTok. I like it. I crazy, like it. it. That does. That Here's does. The deal, right? People think I'm crazy because I'm on TikTok, uh, TikTok, you know, but I learned so much from there. It's not, you know, you could, yeah, they figured out my algorithm. They figured out what I like. They know that I like to work out. They know that I like to learn new things. They, you know, they know that I'm not into the dance things and all the other crazy stuff that's on there. But man, once they figured me out, they sent me so much good stuff. Like I've got this whole TikTok, fol- uh, TikTok folder and, inside of my Gmail, you know, because every time I get something good, it's like, oh, I'm sending that to my file. You know, so wow. I've got this whole huge file of TikTok stuff. I'll send them around the office. There's a lot of motivational stuff in there. I'll send it around the office. I mean, I was, I was just amazed. I've only been on it for like four or five months, but I have been amazed at the amount of things that I've been exposed to and learned. Wow. Now, sure, I've seen a lot of crap, but man, I've learned. I, I like TikTok. Wow. That's awesome. One of my mentors said the same thing. Like he, he's a voracious TikTok, you know, consumer. I'm just like, really? And he says the same exact things that you're saying. So I may have to, I may have to hop on board because I've always seen it, as you said, just like another social media platform, but it sounds like there's, there's a really, really important educational piece that you can tap into once they kind of the learn. Thing about TikTok too, is you can search, you don't have to rely on that scroll, you know, where they think they're sending you what you like. You can actually go in and search and by searching for the certain things that you're interested in, that will build your algorithm faster. Ah, I like it. I like it. Look at that. Another great tip. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I like the fact that I can spend the time with my kids. I mean, that's what life's all about, right? Family. So I know that I lead a very busy life. I'm very scheduled, but. I schedule in all family stuff first and then I schedule the business stuff second. I like it. I like it a lot. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? It was, uh, I almost sacrificed my life on Thanksgiving morning in Brockton, Massachusetts when I first started making money and a broker told me that he had a deal from the worst part of the city. It was all boarded up. And um, I was like, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it because I just wanted to make, I wanted to be successful. You know, I was on the cusp. And uh, we we're up on the second floor, and all of a sudden, there was only one way in and out, and that was the screw. We had to screw uh, the, the plywood off of the front door to get in, and uh, that was everything else was boarded up. And we got up on the second floor, and all of a sudden, we heard voices on the first floor. And I was like, "Oh shit!" And then I heard, uh, then then we smell crack, you know, so they're smoking crack down there, and nobody knows them in this in this house. Nobody from my family. They expect me over for Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, the broker's like, "Oh, oh shoot!" And I'm like, oh, "What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do?" He goes, don't worry, follow me, right? And it's almost pitch black, you know, because there's no lights. And he pulls out a revolver. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, no, now we're mm-hmm. really in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, he's pulling out a gun. It's like, we're going to be in a gunfight. I'm going to be dead on one of them. And all because I just wanted to have a better life. <laughs> and so he, he gets down and start going through those stairs, right? And you hear some, some girls, some guys and some girls. And all of a sudden, I heard him yell, well, Linda, well, Linda, is that you? And I'll, you hear, what? What? Who? What? And it's Brian Allen, right? She goes, Brian Allen. It happened to be one of his tenants in one of his properties that was in there. And she's like, well, Linda, I'm showing, I'm showing one of my clients this building. We're coming through. She goes, you get out here. And I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God. Wow. That's, that's intense. You got, <laughs> you, got, you got lucky on that one. While you, while you, an- yeah. While, while you answered that question, I thought of a question that I wanted to ask during the segment, but I, I didn't get to ask you about competition, right? I mean, are you, yeah. do you have, um, when you're approaching sellers, do you have like a unique selling proposition that puts you over the edge with sellers or is it more of a volume game? Like, is it just numbers? we got to get enough offers out there because we're just playing the numbers game and eventually, you know, we'll have sellers that, that will take us up on the deal. Like, or is there a combination of both, right? When, Again, in this market, you just imagine that there are so many real estate investors, so many buyers looking, you know, in the same emerging markets that you're looking in, right? Buying up the same types of properties that you're buying. And, you know, again, you're seeing properties these days where, you know, they're, they're, they're 30 offers in 24 hours, right? So what, what, what is, what is your, is there a USP involved or are we just playing the volume well, game? Uh, so when we're doing direct mail, I can, and I'm speaking directly with a seller because of my track record now, I just go back to my track record show the number of deals that I've closed. 
But in reality, you know, the sustainable a sustainable business is a business that where you're getting deals from from regular sources, and those are brokers. So it's not so much you dealing with a seller as USP as your relationship with your broker, because a good broker. And I used to own a brokerage company years ago when I was buying so many single family properties and flipping them. I started my own brokerage, and I learned from one of the mentors over there that. If you, if you, somebody from your brokerage company has an offer, and somebody from another brokerage company has an offer to an, one of your listings, your guy always wins, should always win. Doesn't matter if theirs is a higher offer or not, mm. because it's the way that that your representative is going to sell your buyer to your to your seller wow. instead of the, wow. the cobra. And it held out so true because in uh, you know they sell you they you know the the biggest fear is we're not going to close you know so. And that's what they sell on. It's like, hey, this person's closed X amount of deals and I know they, they'll be able to close this one. I don't know what this other offer is, blah, blah, blah. So they're going to be your, your sales team. And then we, we, we also have what's called the whisper. You know, So what's the whisper price? So a good relationship with a broker, number one, you're getting pocket listings. But number two, they know their seller and they know what the seller needs. So he'll say, you know, the, you know, the whisper on this one is the seller typically takes about 15% of what he, what he, what, what he puts it on the market for. You know, so you get an idea of where you need to be. If your numbers work at that price, then you get a deal. I like it. I like it. I like it. Um, let's get back into the, our final round. I just wanted to get that get that out there for our listeners. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Uh, the essential to my growth was the all the books that I read. So I mentioned Anthony Robbins, uh, The Magic of Thinking Big. But before Anthony Robbins was Earl Nightingale's Lead the Field. Somebody gave me that. They found it. And they thought, oh, you might be interested in this. And I listened to it. And that was all about mindset, all about what you believe you can achieve, all about feeding yourself, you know, good things and all about goal setting. And I got that. I got the stranger's secret. And then from there, it was Anthony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within, The Magic of Thinking Big, Unstoppable, 45 stories of people that met adversity, but yet they, they, they survived and, and thrived, um, uh, raised the bar. I, mean, I just kept feeding myself all this stuff. And I remember one time I'd go to my father's cottage, right? And I, that's where that's where my downtime was. But I'd be reading during my downtime. And he says, what are you reading now? And I says, oh, I'm reading this book, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, why don't you just go out and start teaching that stuff? You know, you've been, uh, you've been, you, you've been doing it so long. And I thought, you know, that, that might have planted the seed for teaching. And I was like, you know, maybe someday I will. And that was probably about six years before I started teaching. I like it. I like it. I like it. Oh, I'm a big fan of Earl Nightingale as well. I didn't quite catch that book you said before the Stranger's Secret. What was it? Uh, before the Stranger's Secret was um, um, uh, Earl Nightingale's Lead the Field, Magic of Thinking Big. Lead the Field? Lead the Field. Now, that's an Earl Nightingale's. Back then it was cassettes. It was six cassettes and uh, a great series, really great series. That was really the first thing I ever listened to. Okay. Got it. Got it. I'm definitely going to go check that out. Big fan. Okay. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? It's limiting beliefs. It's the limiting beliefs that your, your subconscious is programmed to feed you um, to help you survive. And I can tell you how to break through that as well. Yes. Uh, and that is, there's a book called uh, The Power of the Subconscious Mind by uh, Murphy. And that way, if you that follow book. that book and, and you do what it says, and it's, it's, um, it's powerful and it takes some work, but man, you follow it through and you have your breakthrough. You'll understand why you do what you do, why you self-sabotage yourself. Yeah. I love it. I love that book as well. The great recommendation, David, this has been an amazing podcast episode. I've learned again, so much about your journey, your life and your business. If the listeners want to learn a little bit more about what you got going on, want to find out a little bit more about uh, the multifamily deal lab and some of the other things that, that are, that are kind of going on in your neck of the woods, maybe you want to drop by, say hi, maybe even ask you a question or two, where can they find you find some more information on you? All right. I got two things. Uh, the website is rementor as a real estate mentor, rementor.com. You can go on there. Uh, you can certainly call the office at 781-878-7114. Or we got this big event coming up. It's called Ultimate Partnering. It's in Dallas, October 1st through the 3rd. George Foreman's going to be there. He's our keynote. Nice. It's anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 investors. And all about people getting about 30% of the people are new. The others, are, we've been teaching since 2002. Everybody else is alumni. They're deal makers. They're deal doers. There are people that want to invest in new people's deals. There are people that want to do partnerships on deals. There are people that are looking to do partnerships on business. 
So much business comes out of that event. Uh, it's so motivational. And we built this community of people that want to help each other grow. It's such an awesome event. So if anybody's interested in that, that's ultimatepartnering.com. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's super easy for me to remember um, social media handles and um, email addresses, possibly and websites. Um, but if you were ever in trouble, this is nothing to do with the show. But I'm just curious because you said that your your business number. If you were ever in trouble, you went to jail or God forbid anything like that. How many numbers do you know off the top of your head of people that you can call? Off the top of my head now with your cell phone when you just press the buttons now and don't put them right, in. Right, exactly. <laughs> I remember all of the phone numbers from my youth, but I don't remember the numbers from my adulthood. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I feel the same. I'm just like, the way things are now, like, I, I probably know two numbers of people, my mom and man, my best friend when I was little, that's about it. <laughs> that's that's the extent of it. So I was just curious, uh, just a random question there. But Dave, I really appreciate you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure and we'll talk to you very soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.